Let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Dearly Father, thank you again for this privilege of being here this evening. Thank you for keeping the doors of this beautiful chapel open so that we can fellowship together, we can break bread together, we can just enjoy life being alive in Christ Jesus together. What a incredible blessing that is in of itself, Father. May we never become familiar with it, but rejoice in it, encourage each other as for as long as it's called today, knowing this truth, reminding each other of it, Father, spreading the good news about your Son, our Lord and Savior, in the process. We pray for those in the congregation that are ill, that can't be with us, that you heal them in your good timing, of course. Bring them back to us so we can fellowship with them as well. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world without hope, that they be humbled, repent, and receive saving faith before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this a reality, to rejoice in. Father, we just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Again, part 39. Proverbs 17, wisdom, there's sort of a, I'll call it a preamble, I guess, um, to this evening's message that's, Consistent with the one that we received on Sunday, uh, we started with that question, what does it mean to, quote, see God? What does it mean to see God? What does the Bible have to say about this kind of sight? So in our recent quest to understand purity, our attention was drawn for a moment to the words of our Lord up here on the board. This is how we ended up with the question, you know, what does it mean to see God? Matthew 5, 8, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so we have the result of purity. So we spent some time on purity, the last few messages, and then we got to this result, that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So the Bible teaches us that seeing God in this context, because we're going to see another context. Remember, I cannot stress this enough, my friends. If you read the Bible, you have to read it in context. I hope that, if, if you've learned anything in the last two years, I hope that's what you've learned. Read your Bible in context. Make it a habit. Even today, if, if I was to, you know, I know this verse, right? Usually I could pluck it out of memory sometimes, you know, word for word, who knows. Um, other verses, even if I go to include those verses in this message or a message like this one, I always go to my Bible and I always read the verses around it, the passage itself, to make sure that if there's any nuance that I'm not being or I could misrepresent, right? I don't do it. That I understand the context before I have the, let's face it, the audacity to insert it into a message that ends up in your soul. So you have to do that for yourselves. You have to read in context. So again, this particular passage has a context, and it teaches us that seeing God in this context is a privilege reserved for those in Christ. Reserved for those in Christ. It's a blessing for us, in fact, a God-given supernatural ability. We, quote, see him. And that's a gift from God. So contextually, Jesus is encouraging we believers to take stock in the supernatural abilities we've been given at salvation. Interestingly, though, as I alluded to a minute ago, the Bible also speaks about another context, a different context when it comes to seeing. And in this context, we're going to see 
that the Bible describes seeing the Lord in us, for others. In other words, other people can see the Lord in us. For example, the book of Hebrews was written to a Jewish audience. Go to Hebrews 12, 1. Hebrews 12, verse 1. So we have a Jewish audience. who were constantly, you know, swayed by old traditions, by Judaizers, just by the momentum of society. I know some of you, if you've ever come from a mainstream religion, maybe the one that's around here, right? There's a lot of momentum and it's hard. It's hard to stray off of it. There's a lot of momentum. I mean, even like holiday season, like Thanksgiving, Christmas, the whole gener you know, generations of people go to this church and they, there's just the momentum there and it's hard to break free of it. So that's what you know, is going on here contextually. Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and just for some clarity here, I even picked up on this myself uh, as recent as this morning, it really was driven home. It refers to believers who have died uh, before us, or before the audience here, that lived by faith, that we can and should be encouraged by their witness and continue the legacy, so to speak. And so the context here is, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, other people, in other words, right? Let us also, in other words, do likewise. That's why the word also is there. Let us also lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, verse 1 speaks about examples for us. We're carrying on the legacy of those that surround us, those witnesses in the first phrase. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Quote, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. And that's a reference to sanctification. Discipline is part of sanctification. There's no way you will be sanctified without being disciplined along the way. That's what this passage is saying. Verse 11, <clears throat> For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit. We're going to get to the fruit, peaceful fruit later on. That's actually one of the highlights of this message. Later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, again, here's where we get to our point, without which no one will see the Lord. Different context, you see without which no one will see the Lord. Up here on the board, MacDonald on Hebrews 12, 14, 
says what this verse means is that there must be a practical holiness as a proof of the new life within. People can see it. That's the point of verse 14, right? Without this thing, uh, no one will see the Lord in you. Remember, that's the context. What this verse means is that there must be practical holiness as a proof of the new life within. If a person is not growing more holy, he is not saved. There has to be a forward progression. Right? Otherwise, we would be calling God impotent, incapable to fulfill on his own promises about how he's going to sanctify those whom he's already saved. So if a person is not growing more holy, he is not saved. When the Holy Spirit indwells a person, he manifests his presence by a separated life. It is a matter of cause and effect. If Christ has been received, the rivers of living water will flow. Not maybe flow, not kind of flow, they will flow. Right? Again, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So again, we started off this evening with what does it mean to see God? What does it mean to see the Lord? We had the uh, Matthew 5.8 passage, which was the first context for believers. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now we have another context in Hebrews. I gave you the sort of the background on it, the Jew, uh, Jewish uh, thought process going on. But this time, it's up to the believers to be witnesses to unbelievers. Okay, so the point the writer making here is very clear. For starters, peace is a definite fruit of the Spirit. We know that from elsewhere in the New Testament, up here on the board, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. There it is. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The idea, though, again, is that peace is a fruit of the Spirit. We see clearly that godly peace is fruit of the Spirit. As, it's, as, uh, as it is its close cousin, which is contentment, up here on the board, uh, 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So think about it. The Bible clearly teaches us that peace and contentment are fruit of being alive in Christ Jesus. Doesn't mean it's perfect in your life. That's what sanctification is, to move towards perfection, to move towards maturity in Christ Jesus. So the Bible clearly teaches, though, that peace and contentment are among the fruit, the primary fruit of sanctification. And if you have no apparent fruit or no apparent extra peace or more, more peace or more contentment in life, you're not saved. That's what the Spirit's saying. There's certain fruit that has to be evident. So the Bible teaches us also that this fruit is visible to others, even unbelievers. That's the context here. That this fruit is visible to others, even unbelievers. And as believers, our fruit then becomes our witness for Jesus Christ. In other words, as this week's guest blogger wrote, words alone are vapid without a heart standing behind them. Up here on the board, we have a guest blogger this week. Uh, the title is A Repentant Heart. Words are vapid. Words alone are vapid, right? They're just words. If there's nothing behind them, you see. So, again, our fruit becomes our living testimony of who we are in Christ Jesus. To summarize, words aren't enough. Lip service isn't enough. There has to be evidence. There has to be more. God says, I will show you. If you read, I think it's uh, 1 John, the end of 1 John 3 into 1 John 4, 
one of the, the he says that the spirit will let you know that you're saved. And it's not a lip service thing. And others will see it in you as we'll close with this evening. And you know what? That's not a religious statement. So please don't be confused. Just because I'm up here preaching the truth that says you will bear fruit. That's not a religious uh, that's not a religious, a, a false religious statement. That's the truth. This is God's economy, remember. Remember the sphere of God. This is God's economy. If you've been inducted, let's say, if you've been, if you've been given entree into God's economy because you're saved, then you stop functioning with fruit in there. This is God's economy. So encouraging fruit in the lives of others, is there for a reason. So God doesn't just say, hey, listen, I'm going to bless you out with peace and contentment. I'm actually going to use you as a witness. I'm going to use you as a witness to unbelievers so they can see what's going on in you so that you might be able to, I don't know, evangelize them. You might be able to speak of Christ to them. You are a witness. Maybe you don't say anything. Maybe you're a quiet soul and your life speaks volumes. But what we know is what the Bible says. And it says that others, unbelievers, will see the Lord in us. Hmm. So again, this is God's economy. So encouraging fruit in the lives of others is there for a reason. We just read it earlier. Go back to verse 1 in Hebrews 12. What did we read? How are we encouraged? Well, we're intended to be encouraged by others that preceded us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and that refers to, again, those in that context there, those that have gone before them, and the encouragement is that they should be, just like we should be, encouraged by their witness and continue this legacy. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So, when we get to the, this, the last verse in this passage that we just read, uh, we see the connective tissue between the witness of our lives and the ability of others to, quote, see the Lord. Look at verse 14 again. Verse 14, where we have unbelievers in view. Unbelievers. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness. In other words, your witness as being sanctified, set apart for God's purposes in Christ Jesus, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Do you see it? No one. That includes unbelievers. This holiness, if it doesn't exist, no one will see the Lord in you. Again, I'll cite McDonald up here on the board on Hebrews 12, 14. What this verse means is that there must be practical holiness as a proof of the new life within. Practical. If a person is not growing more holy, he is not saved. When the Holy Spirit indwells a person, he manifests his presence by a separated life. It is a matter of cause and effect. If Christ has been received, the rivers of living water will flow. Again, the context, though, here, <clears throat> in this part of this chapter, reveals that it is our fruit that others will see fruit that others will see. They don't see Jesus. It's not like we have Jesus tattooed on us. It's our lives. It's our activities. It's our behavior. It's our, it's our uh, speech. It's whatever they run into. That's what the Bible says they see. And without holiness, guess what? They don't see the Lord. And so we're encouraged to be holy, to even behave holy to seek sanctification, to God's glory. That's the point. And that shouldn't scare anyone in here, not at this juncture. 
Again, the context here is that our fruit uh, allows others to see the Lord. And if you're paying attention, it actually uses the negative logical argument. That is to say, if we don't bear good fruit, how will others ever notice the work of God in us? If we never bear good fruit, how will others ever notice the work of God in us? How will they ever make the connection to salvation if we aren't actually changed in their viewpoint? Go to uh, James 2.14, because James uh, expounds upon this in greater detail. James 2.14 Again, the context here, James, like so many of the writers in the New Testament, were fighting, you know, people that were on a works program. James 2.14 reads, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. Any questions? I mean, come on. Could it be any clearer in Holy Scripture? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Is that false religion being preached by Jesus' brother James? May it never be, right? May it never be. He's simply saying the same thing the writer of Hebrews is saying, that seeing the Lord God in others is something that comes with bearing fruit of the Spirit. Again, to God's glory. To God. It's not to prove anything. It's not for self-justification. It's not for self-righteousness. It's just a, a, a proof point, a given proof point that a saved person bears good fruit. What did Jesus say? A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. And they can't produce the opposites. Those are Jesus's words. So again, seeing the Lord God in others is something that comes with bearing fruit of the Spirit to God's glory. It's such a prevalent part of God's economy that he uses it to help evangelize unbelievers. That's what we noted in Hebrews 12, 14. That unbelievers can see it even. And he uses it. He says, you know, unbelievers will say, I want that peace. If they're honest, if they're humble, I want what that person has. Oh, you want what I have? You want this peace that you see in me? Everybody else is flipping out. Right? With the election and COVID and everything else, like flipping out. I want what you have. You seem to be level. Yeah. Because my citizenship's in heaven. So says the word of God. Hebrews 1.3 says Jesus Christ has the whole universe is under his control. What do I got to fear? Man? Right? I want what you have. So again, this this bearing fruit to his glory is a huge part of God's economy. He uses it even to evangelize and witness to unbelievers even. Not just to encourage we believers, but that happens too. That happens too. David understood the value of abiding in God's economy, which implies this spiritual sight, seeing God, right? So he prayed fervently for it. As we noted on Sunday, up here on the board, I'll give it to you. Uh, Psalm 51.10. 
He said, create in me a clean or pure heart, O God, and renew or repair a right, firm, steadfast spirit within me. I want that back. I want what's, what's mine to have. McLaren, uh, up here on the board, on Psalm 51.10, he sees that a spirit which is conscious of its relation to God and set free from the perturbations of sin will be a spirit firm and settled, established and immovable in its obedience and its faith. So, as we step back and take all of this in, knowing that we are blessed in God's economy, it makes perfect sense that it is God's divine will to gather us into this economy. I mean, in the experiential sense, positionally we're in, positionally we're saved, positionally we're made pure, positionally we are sanctified, positionally we're made new, but experientially we can fall in and out of this sphere of functioning practically in this sphere. Hence all the encouragement to get back there. And as we mature, we spend more time there. So again, we are blessed uh, being in God's economy. And again, it makes perfect sense that it's his will to gather us into this economy as a function of our sanctification. That's what it means to be sanctified, to spend more and more time in his economy, in a practical sense, in an experiential way. Why? Because now you become a better witness. You bring more glory to him. Even unbelievers see more of him in you. In other words, the more we understand that all good things exist for, in, and through him, the more encouraged we are to remain in pristine fellowship with him. This is something we noted on Sunday. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. This is the will of God. Right? The more we understand that all good things exist for and in and through him, the more encouraged we are to remain in pristine fellowship with him. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 reads, For this is the will of God, what? Your sanctification. That is the very act of God purifying you experientially. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, right? You, you probably, I'm just going to go out on a limb, you probably should be extremely careful of what you read, extremely careful of uh, what you go to, say, on the Internet, including all the ads down the sides, right? You can't even surf the net now without some perverted thing going on. And definitely television and movies, Right? You don't have to be having sex with somebody to be sexually immoral. Right? It's impure thinking even. Again, abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Remember, God is not mocked. Verse 7, For God has not called us for impurity, the opposite of purity, but in holiness. That is our calling. That's our objective as believers. God has not called us for impurity, to be schlepping around like a hoe, Right? I mean, physically and spiritually, as well as emotionally, or even upstairs. That's not what we're called to do. That's impurity as its best. He's called us for holiness, in holiness. This ought to be very encouraging for us, to the point where we might echo David's prayer. Again, up here on the board, Psalm 51.10. He said, Create in me a clean, pure heart, O God, and renew, repair a right, firm, steadfast spirit within me. That was David's prayer, his earnest prayer. Purify me, 
I keep going, you know, I'm thinking about Jesus' um, you know, cleaning the feet of the disciples with the, with the lesson. You only have to be washed once, but clean your feet daily. You know, that Jesus Christ washed their feet because we go out. The illustration is we go out into the muck and the mire and we get the slop all over our feet. And we need the word to wash over us. We need to be cleansed. And that's what David is praying for. Create in me a clean, pure heart, O God, and renew and repair a right, firm, steadfast spirit within me. That doesn't happen, folks, if you're filthy. Do you understand? If you're living a dipsukos, a double life. Some of you are like, but I go to church. Big deal. Read this week's blog. Big deal. You go to church. You haven't repented in like 10 years. Oh, you might confess things. You might say the same thing as God, but you actually haven't repented a darn thing. And so there you sit, stewing in muck and stench. And you say, why am I so miserable? Because you're filthy. That's why. That's why. Repentance, look, without repentance, there's no sanctification from that sin. It's not just enough to name and cite it. That's foolishness. That's what we call religion 101. And it's evil and it's from the pit of hell. The idea is to get past the confession to repentance. Remember? Ooh, remember that? Remember? Ooh, I think it was apostergos. I think it was the Greek. Ooh, that repulsiveness of evil. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Let love be genuine. That's God's economy, right? That's what David's getting at here in verse 10. Renew. Oh, I don't want. Oh. That's what he's doing. That's what he's praying for. That's what we should pray for. Not just, hey, can you show me what I'm doing wrong? Okay, good. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay right here shacked up with my sin. Repent, folks. Okay. As we get back to our primary course of study now, I want you to think about what experiential sanctification actually means. I don't mean theologically. Not, oh yeah, I understand that. It's deliverance from the power of sin. Because it's the free peace. I don't know why I'm talking like a Chinaman. <laughs> right? The penalty, the power, the presence. I got my theology. Well, ain't you just snappy? It's not about that. So I want you to think about what experiential sanctification actually means in the most practical sense. Don't just give me the... It's not about me. Don't just give yourself... Don't just claim some, uh, I don't know, stronghold on theology. Oh, I understand my theology. Then why are you, why are you stuck? Why do you smell like a sewer pipe? Honest to goodness... Why is there a stench 50 feet away from you? Spiritually. You have all this, it's like when Jesus Christ berated the fact, he goes, you're a teacher of the law and this is what you bring? This is how you, what? You're a teacher of the law and you still don't get it? Yeah. That's what lack of repentance is. You know all the theology, but you refuse to Abide by it, to obey, to be humble. So don't just say, I know what experiential sanctification is. I have a, you know what? I have a photographic memory. I could probably write that slide that was up there last month on the three phases of sanctification. I could probably write it right out just like this. Right? Why do you still stink? No, for real. You just got stinkier because now you're arrogant in your knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, right? Says the Bible. Now you just got worse. <laughs> you laugh because, you know, we've all done it, right? It's ridiculous. It's something we like to do. We like to stake a claim to theology, but we don't like to apply it. I mean, apply it would mean sanctification, would mean oh, my life is going to change. My habits are going to change. My friends are going to change. My thoughts are going to change. My sin is going to be 
expelled away from me. And I like that sin, though. That's my buddy. You see? That's my bed buddy. We're tight. I don't want to get rid of that. I just want to tell God that I, I agree. No. So you've got to think of experiential sanctification in the most practical sense. Because we can pontificate about theology for a long time if we'd like. And there's a value to understanding theology. I'm not discounting understanding you know, dogmatic truth in the Word of God. But at some point, it's meant to be applied, you see. Right? So we can pontificate, or we can do what God actually wants us to do, which is to confess His truths, repent from any errant thinking or living, and seek to be sanctified by the one thing that is able to do it. That one thing that Jesus prayed about in his incredible prayer to his Father in heaven, up here in the board, John 17, 17. And this is what's so beautiful about what you're all doing this evening. You're taking in this pearl. You're taking in, it's almost like the, the soap and the scrubber, right? You're filthy, you're a mess, you just got the stench of the world. The Word of God comes in and scrubs it off. It cleanses. That's what the Word does. It's, it, you know, what, remember the little bubbles? Whee! In the tub? Nobody? No. What was that called? What was that stuff? What, what do you call it? Scrubbing bubbles. Scrub. Kathy, you don't even know. I'm just kidding. It's the scrubbing bubbles. All I remember is they had little eyes and little, they looked like little, and they'd be like cruising around the tub. Anyways, I digress apparently. But that's what, I, when I think of what the word, when you're filthy and the word just washes over you and the word cleanses you, it, it's just, a, it's a riddance. It's like, you know, psh, what did Jesus say? Verse 17 on the board. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Cleanse them, purify them, sanctify them, make them holy. How? With the Word. With the strength of the Word, which is truth. James wrote of this same truth, which is the power of God's Word to sanctify us, up here on the board. James 1, 21 and 22. Therefore, put away all filthiness. You see, you see the getting rid of the filth, right? Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. In other words, get this stuff off, wash it off, and receive with meekness the implanted word. Same relationship. Word comes on the scene, filth drops away, which is able to save. Sozo, it means to cure, heal, restore to health your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. So James saying the same thing as Jesus was praying for. Let the word cleanse you. Let the Word, take in the Word of God, and it will cleanse you. It will clean you up. That was David's prayer, even. That's the power of the Word in God the Spirit in our lives. And that's how we're sanctified. Again, think about what experiential sanctification actually means in the most practical sense as we press on in our primary course of study now. For starters, think about how much more the following passage means to the person who is sanctified in truth. Go to Proverbs 17, 6. Again, think about now everything we just, all the momentum from the start of this message. Take all that with you. And think about how much more this passage means the more a person is sanctified in truth. You might read this as a brand new believer and go, hey, that seems like a swell thing. Honestly, it seems like a cool, it seems like a good thing to have. And then take someone who's been sanctified for decades and they look at something as magnificent as generational blessings, familial blessings. And they might have a, they're, they not might, they will have a very different perspective on Proverbs 17.6, which reads, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. 
I gave you three other translations on Sunday up here on the board. The first one is the Amplified, Proverbs 17, 6. Grandchildren are the crown of aged men, and the glory of children is their fathers who live godly lives. So again, the, the, the dynamic is that God's describing generations in the, in the sphere of God. Right? Generations that abide in him. That's, that's the, uh, it's almost what personifies them. Godliness is spread throughout generations. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Up here on the board, the New Living Translation. Grandchildren are the crowning glory of the aged. Uh, parents are the pride of their children. So not only do grandparents look down a couple of generations, children look up one generation. And then verse, uh, the next one in the message up here on the board. Old people are distinguished by grandchildren. Children take pride in their parents. And so godliness that exists throughout generations is a true blessing for everyone involved. And we shouldn't begrudge it. Okay, I'll say the same thing I said on Sunday. It's a hard teach because if I was to poll this congregation, most would be like, man, we're lucky if we got like one half of one generation with its act together. Or maybe a couple. You know what I mean? Started with my grandparents, you know, I kind of stuck with it, and then I don't know, my kids just went over there. Or, you know, we're the first ones to be serious about the word. Who knows? Nonetheless, it doesn't matter about what's going on in your life, what the reality is in your family. What the Spirit's teaching us is what God wants. God's, the, the Word of God is describing the, the, the beauty of a godly generation upon generation set up, if you would. Okay? So godliness that exists through generations is a true blessing for everyone. Uh, so here's a good time to apply, perfect time to apply or think back to Jesus' words. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We see that in a godly, you know, in a multi-generation godly family. We see it in each other. Beautiful for a, a grandparent to look down and say, look at my grandchild. They're a believer. They're bringing glory to God. They've got fruit that proves it, the whole nine yards. And then it's beautiful for a child to look up to their parent and go, look at my parent. They're a believer. It's beautiful. They shall see God. Just think of all the goodness generations of families uh, enjoy when it is dominated by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, etc., etc., right? Imagine, imagine if your family right now, this Christmas, some of you are like, oh, right? Everybody that showed up for Christmas had the fruit of the Spirit, I mean, on full display. Come on, would that not be magnificent? Would that not be just, just beautiful? Just, can we just get together and love Jesus together? Can we just fellowship in his good name? Can we sing a few hymns? Can we, you know, make toast with eggnog? I don't know. Can we just, can we just love each other? Can we, can we not have all these eggshells and the, and the problems and the jealousies and the, the histories? Can we just like be dominated by fruit of the Spirit? Imagine how beautiful that would be. Oh. Again, I tried to draw it for you up here on the board, and I forgive me, it's a little goofy, but you get the point. What you see when you draw it out is almost like a, a stitching together of generations. It's a tightly bound group of individuals. And the connective tissue is the Word of God. They've all been sanctified, sort of shored up, cemented into place uh, with a common, with a common uh, goal, if you would, or, or uh, uh, that is Jesus Christ. So is it safe to say that God loves families? Yeah. It's true. It's safe to say that God loves families. And he designed them. Think about it. He especially loves godly families. Especially 
so. Although, to be fair, he loves the institution. He loves the institution of family in the generic sense because he uses it to govern the world around us. Think about it. Even unbelievers, when the family structure remains in place and functioning well, as opposed to all the dysfunction that we see, everyone's better off. Amen? Even unbelievers who haven't blown up family, the, the divine institution, let's call it, of family, do better off. Even whole societies and therefore countries do better off. All we have to do is look at our own. Satan knows this. So he has done everything in his power to destroy the divine institutions of marriage and family. He's done everything in his power to destroy it. Instead of godly marriages and families, there exists a bunch of perversions of them. They still use the word marriage, but in God's eye, there's no such thing as a homosexual marriage. They use the idea of a family. But what happens when two people just get together, they start having sex, they live together, they start having babies, there's no family, there's no marriage, there's no real family structure. Um, that's a perversion. That's a perversion. Here's what the Bible has to say about alternatives uh, to the divine institutions of marriage and family. For starters, go to Psalm 127 verse 1. Psalm 127 verse 1. And talk about something to repent from, my friends. If you've been in any way, shape, or form in Satan's back pocket in terms of destroying marriage or family in your life, now's the time to repent. Now is the time to repent. It's not enough to confess it. Repent from it. Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sheep up here on the board, alternatives to God's will. Unless God builds the house, watches over the city, or provides you with work, it is done in vain. Unless God builds the house, watches over the city, or provides you with work, it is done in vain. Solomon continues sharing his wisdom in this passage which is where we pick up our studies from last time, curiously enough. Look at verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Up here on the board. Here's the point the Spirit's driving home. Divine institutions. This is a practical, a practical aspect of sanctification for we believers. Divine institution. God is the one who created the institutions of marriage and family. He also chose to make us in his own image. So it makes sense that since family is a big deal to God, then it's a big deal to us as well. And if it isn't, it ought to be. He's the one who created family. Who came up with the construct? Right? As far as I know, there's not that, that construct doesn't exist with those that preceded us, a.k.a. the angels. They're just one big, you know, group of creatures. God gave us families. He gave us something that is intimate to him to his relationship with us. He set up this construct of, 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 you know, husband and wife, 
Jesus and the church. He set up this idea of a family. He says, call me dad. You're my children. He set this whole thing up around family. Why? Apparently, he loves the idea. And apparently, he wants to share that goodness with us. And what do we do? We destroy it. We destroy it. And that's the, that's the crime of, and that's the horrible thing. Horrible, horrible thing that's going on, even in our own country. Last week's blog uh, spoke to this in great detail. It was called The Friends and Family Plan. If you haven't read it yet, please do. As we closed with on Sunday, we concluded that divine institutions are founded on one thing. God, out of love, has graced his creation with these institutions so that it functions in a way that it doesn't implode. It's sort of like being a shepherd over a flock of sheep and you intentionally keep them away from the cliffs that they might wander off of and, you know, to their own peril. It's, it's, these institutions keep us on, out, of, out of peril <laughs> from, from falling apart. He gives us these institutions. He gave them even to unbelievers because they work. And it's his deal after all. The point is, though, a good shepherd watches his sheep because of one thing up here on the board, love. We didn't get to complete our survey of love. Yeah, we've got some time. Yeah. We didn't get to complete our survey of love in the Bible last time, so let's, let's make a little more progress before we close. We started with 1 Peter 1.22 on Sunday, having purified your souls up here on the board. By your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We ended our message on Sunday with, up here on the board, 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. So let's continue a little bit further with our survey on love, where Paul, as a spiritual father to the flock, shares his thoughts with the Corinthians. Go to 2 Corinthians 2.4. If you know anything about the Corinthians, they would certainly be the group that would try a pastor's patience. It's not a whole lot unlike Americans, to be totally honest. Uh, it's not a whole lot of, unlike you, <laughs> to be totally honest, on a Thursday night. <laughs> right? I mean, I, there's no way. Does anybody know of another group of individuals that's more like America than the Corinthians? I don't. I mean, it's almost like reading, you know, an old version of us now. It's crazy. All the, you know, the prosperity and the, and the, the, the awfulness and the, the sexual sins and the, the arrogance and the, ah, oh, it's disgusting, right? It's just like America. Second Corinthians 2.4. But look what he says. He said, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Man, you guys are bringing me low. <laughs> right? But I want you to know that I love you. Think about that. Think about if you were a Corinthian and, you know, unbeliever or believer alike, and you saw this guy who was unrelenting in his love for you. Wouldn't you say there was something unique about him? Wouldn't you maybe just listen a little bit more to the message he was giving? Wouldn't you say that by the strength of his character and his love, that he was portraying something special? That he had something? That he wasn't dependent on you to press on? That he did it for some higher calling? Maybe a calling that was given to him? We talked about callings earlier. That there's something different about this guy? What do you think? Yeah. Why does it have to be Paul? Why does it have to be the great Paul of the New Testament? Why can't it be you? Honest to goodness. Why can't you have that same witness as Paul 
There was nothing special about him. He would tell you to your face. There's nothing special about me. I'm humble. You know, I press on. Look at Romans said, I still don't do the stuff I want to do. What's, what's so special about him? Nothing. Honestly. I mean, I say that with all due respect to him. So why, isn't, why can't you do that? Why can't you walk around and instead of laughing at the Corinthians in Paul's situation with them, why can't you walk around America? Because we all agreed that America is just like Corinth. Why can't, we walk, why can't we walk around America and show the love of Christ so that others go, I, I want what they have. Show the peace of Christ. I mean, he said, I give it to you, my peace I give to you. But why, why can't we show that? Why does it have to be Paul in a book? Right? Why can't the letter be written on your heart? It's for all to read. It can. That's the whole point. And that's why God has prepared you. That's why he sanctifies you. So that you can do this same thing. So that you can love. So you can show love for who you are. Remember going backwards. For who you are. That was Paul. Regarding marriage and family, go to Ephesians 5.33 quickly. Ephesians 5.33. Regarding marriage and family. Ephesians 5.33. Ephesians 5.33 reads, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And what's the analogy? The husband loves the wife like Christ loved the church. God loves family, my friends. God loves family. And he wants his love to pervade it all. To be the guiding principle, the glue, the tie that binds. Satan's trying to destroy it. He doesn't want, look, he doesn't want a husband to love his wife anymore. He wants the husband to love the girl down the street who's 20 years younger. He wants the husband to love some figment of his imagination on a porn site. Or, 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 or he wants his husband to love and fantasize about some woman actress on some movie he's watching. That's what Satan wants. He, wants. he wants to take that love that's reserved by God for the one woman that God gave him. And he wants him to be distracted. He wants him to take that and misplace and misappropriate that love so that the family falls apart, so that the marriage falls apart, so that the head removes itself from the body. That's Satan's plan. And you know what happens after that. I mean, once the head of the family goes out the door, what happens to the children? What happens, what happens to all the functionality? What happens to all the goodness of family? What happens to the divine institution that God set aside to bring glory to him, to hold the whole kit and caboodle together? What happens to it? It blows up. Why? Why? Because love has been removed somehow, some way. All love is is affection for, by definition, that love has been diverted Satan's really, really smart. God loves families. Satan hates them. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this truth. We know that you give it to us to sanctify us, to set us free. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls, to our families to our marriages, Father. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name.
by the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.